We are going through 2 Peter. Um, I know that it can be tough out there. I'm out there too. Uh, that makes me very glad to come in here. I love coming here. So are you ready for an encouraging message from God's word? Okay, that will be next week. I'm dead serious. <laughs> this is probably chapter two of 2 Peter. It's one of the toughest chapters in the entire New Testament. It kind of harkens back to some of the Old Testament prophetic voices. It's hard. But the reason why Pastor Peter is looking at the churches that he pastors and wanting to warn them is if you just fatten people up and you don't warn them, then you're just giving a better meal to the wolves. And so Peter here is going to warn and I think warning is actually the most loving thing you can do at times. So if my son Elijah John is riding his skateboard and he's got his headphones on and he's pulling his latest trick, a double Sukahara with a backflip, and I see an 18-wheeled semi-truck headed for him, and I shout, get out of the way! Is that being mean? Will Elijah look at me and say, Dad, you're being really negative right now. No, that's the most loving thing that I could ever do. So Peter in this chapter is yelling, stop, get out of the way. This will hurt you. And what I have titled this is real simple, fake people, real God. So he begins by talking about fake people and then he talks about real God. I think sometimes we have a fairy God a God that has been created in our image and it's not the God of the Bible. And so Peter is very careful to tell us this is the holy, pure God that we deal with, real God, all right? So let's jump in, verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Fake people. So Peter prophetically says right now they're in the church and looking down the corridor of church history, he says there's always going to be these people that are false teachers, false prophets, fakes. And he gives us a way to identify them. He just says, here's what they look like. So we're just gonna run down this list because if Edgewater's your church, you should have your radar up. If this is not your church and you go somewhere else, have your radar up because they'll come. So he says, number one, they're gonna come in secretly. They're gonna be there with a Bible and a smile and they're gonna be nice people. You're gonna like them, right? They will not have 666 tattooed on their forehead. They won't have horns growing out. They won't have a red cape. They won't do any of that. They're going to be a nice person with a Bible telling you 
half-truths. So if you met with somebody that you knew was a Satanist or you met with somebody that you knew was a Buddhist or if you met with somebody that you knew was a Muslim or an atheist, you're gonna go in there armored up, right? Because you're gonna realize we don't believe the same things. So I'm gonna really try to parse out what you're trying to say to me. But if you meet with somebody that says, oh, I'm a Christian like you, man. I believe the same things. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Then all of a sudden your guard goes down and that's a much more dangerous place to be in. It's much harder, okay? Just because somebody is quoting the Bible does not mean they're telling you the truth. Do you know that? Jesus in Matthew chapter four squares off against Satan and Satan quotes the Bible to Jesus. It's Psalm 91. Satan does not quote the whole verse. He rips it out of context. So whenever I'm talking to somebody and they mention a verse, here's what I always do. I read the verse in front of it and the verse below it because I wanna know what's the context of this verse because you can do great damage when you just parse out a little chunk of scripture. That's why we go through entire books of the Bible very often at Edgewater because you get the whole thing. You get the context. So they come in with a Bible and a smile and they're nice and they tell you everything you wanna hear. Secret. Number two, it says they're destructive. The things that they say are not just half-truths that don't matter. The things that they speak, the heresies that they speak, they will condemn and destroy your soul. Why? Because of what they do. It's this third thing. They deny the master who bought them. They deny who Jesus is. That's the destructive heresy that they bring in. They say, well, Jesus was a great teacher that we can learn from, but he wasn't God. Or they say, Jesus is just our example. He lived the life and we're supposed to like elevate our lives to live like Jesus. People that say that to me, I say, really? Have you ever read the story of Jesus? Do you actually think you can live like Jesus? Jesus who when stakes are being driven through his arms and his ankles, says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Try that. We can't forgive somebody that sends us a nasty email. The standard that Jesus sets, if that's our example, it will crush you because you will never be able to live up to it. Right? So yeah, he's a teacher or he's an example, right? So they have all these other things that Jesus is, but it's not, they're denying the master. The author of our book, Peter, actually had a conversation that Jesus asked, hey, who are people saying that I am? It's found in Matthew chapter 16. It's a brilliant text. So let me read it to you. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Brilliant. So here's what happens. Jesus is with his disciples. He's been with them for three years. 
There's these rumors going around about Jesus, like he's like, right? It's a way to compare. Well, he's like this, he's like that. So they compare him to four different characters. The first is John the Baptist. People are saying, Jesus, you're like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was an iconoclast. He was crushing and just destroying the status quo of the day, right? He was countercultural. Today, he'd be like a guy that recycles his gray water and lives in a straw bale house and uses Humapost. If you don't know what that is, do not Google it. It's disgusting. He'd be like that, like tearing down the infrastructure that had been set up to maintain the status quo. Well, Jesus was like that. Read his teachings. Read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is dismantling the status quo. That's what Jesus did. I tell people, if you do not wanna be offended by Jesus, then do not read the gospels. You will be offended by them. Every time I read the gospels, there's something in there where I just say, oh man, that's so good. And I am not, right? So they're like, yeah, you're kind of like John the Baptist that way. And then no, you're kind of like Elijah. Elijah was this prophet in the Old Testament that did incredible miracles. And you read the story of Jesus and Jesus was constantly doing miracles. So they're saying, you're like Elijah. You come in the power of miracles. And thirdly, some said, you're like Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. He had compassion on people. Jesus was the same way. Just two chapters before chapter 16 and chapter 14, John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, six months older than him, gets his head cut off. Jesus hears the news and it says he got in a boat to go across the lake to go grieve somewhere. Gets across the lake, there are 4,000 people waiting for him on the other side. Now, if you just lost a good friend, a cousin, and you wanted to grieve, what would you do if 4,000 people wanted to talk to you? You'd probably walk on water if you couldn't get out of there. Not Jesus. He gets off, ministers, loves, just spends the whole day with these people because he was a man of compassion. And fourthly, they say, now, you're like, you're like a prophet, that prophet, because the words that Jesus spoke and the life that Jesus lived were so right and so true and so exacting that they said, that is it. You're like that prophet. Jesus doesn't go off on these. He's not like, oh, that's really cool. Wow, huh, this is awesome. Instead, Jesus looks at them and says, okay, that's fine. Those are great comparisons, but who do you say that I am? In eternity, that is the only question that will matter. Doesn't matter what I say about Jesus. Doesn't matter what your parents say about Jesus. Doesn't matter what people that you admire say about Jesus. Ultimately, the only question in eternity that will matter is this. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the author of our book, says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of God. So what did that mean to a fisherman in the first century to say to Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of God? What was, what was Peter saying in that moment? Well, Isaiah 9, 6, Christmas passage. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And his name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. This born one is also God, right? An incredible passage. What Peter was saying was that, hey, Jesus, you're a teacher or an example or a prophet. What Peter was saying is this, you are 
God. What's amazing to me is this. He had lived with Jesus for three years. And after three years, he says, you're God. Here's what I've noticed. The longer I'm around somebody, the less God-like they seem to me, right? <laughs> you might like admire them and like, yeah, they're my hero and there's all this stuff. And then you actually get to know them and you're like, oh, well, actually. My best example is this. I love Oregon State football. It does not love me, but they did win yesterday. Got our one, got our one win out of the way. All right. So uh, love it. Loved it when I went to school there. We'd go to the games. And um, there was a, a, my senior year, our senior offensive tackle, Johnny Garrett, uh, admired him. He's a great player, great addition. Uh, he moved and became one of my roommates. So I had admired him from afar, like Johnny Garrett, what a stud, right? 6'4", 270, just a big mountain of a man, super gregarious, just funny guy. And he becomes my roommate. So I idolized him. And then I lived with him, Right? So Johnny Garrett weighed 270 and the Beaver football team wanted him to weigh 290. So what that meant was this, he ate mass quantities. I mean, unbelievable amounts. They sent him home with these cases. It was called Mega Mass 2000. It had like 2000 calories per tablespoon. And then they sent him home with this giant blender. It was like a boat motor hooked to a bowl. And he would take whole milk. He'd bring home just massive gallons of whole milk. He'd pour whole milk in there. Just take, not even the little scooper. He'd just dump in like Mega Mass 10,000. And then he would take peanut butter and add peanut butter to it and blend it up. And then he would walk around our tiny little three-bedroom duplex drinking this mixture straight out of the blender. Well, all those calories affected his digestive system. He literally became an offensive tackle. The more I lived with Johnny, the less I thought he was God. <laughs> like, ah, oh, Johnny, man. <laughs> Peter, three years with Jesus, and he says, you're God. You're God in the flesh. That's who you are. Secondly was this. The Messiah was the hope of Israel. It was their hope. They had no other hope. They had tried every other hope. Kings had failed them. Conquest of nations had failed them. Babylon had failed them. Idols had failed them. Every, they had been on every level for 1,500 years. The mark of the Old Testament is this, failure. They'd failed. They had one hope, and it's this sliver that's woven all the way through the Old Testament. There's hope. It was given to Adam and Eve after their sin, God looks at them and says, here's your hope. The seed of the woman will crush this serpent's head. There's hope. It was given to Abraham. When Abraham was told, in your line, in your family, all the nations of earth will be blessed. It was given to David. You're gonna have a son and that son will rule forever in righteousness. It's given to Isaiah over and over. He's the branch, the root of Jesse, who's going to be both the suffering servant and the conquering king. I don't know how, but he is. The hopes of Israel was on this. They had lost hope in anything else. Government wasn't gonna do it. Economy wasn't gonna do it. Kings weren't gonna do it. We need Messiah. It was their hope. It's like this. I went to Israel four years ago with my wife, Charity, 
And we were there for three weeks, so you don't pack 21 you know, different outfits. At least I didn't. I had like four. So you're rotating them through, and I was with 50 other people. And so after a while, you kind of get like, ah, oh, they're wearing that shirt again. So there was this lady, her favorite shirt was this. She was a mom, and it said this, no matter what the question is, the answer is chocolate. So she'd ask a question, be like, where's the hotel? Guess what I'd say? Chocolate. Where's the bathroom? Anybody know where the bathroom is? I've got to really use the bathroom. Chocolate. Right? With my wife, it probably actually works. She loves chocolate that much. That's Israel. At this point, it didn't matter what the question was. We need Messiah. There is no solution that we can think of. There is no answer that we know of. There's one thing. It's Jesus. He is our hope. He's the hope that if we press into him, he will free us from the beast of the tyranny of our own selves. He'll make out of us a new kind of reality. He'll redeem us. He'll justify us. He's going to be the one. And so that's what their entire hope was pinned on, this coming Messiah. And so when Peter's asked the question, he says, you are it. You're it. They, these guys, deny that. No, Jesus is just an example. No, Jesus is just a teacher. No, Jesus is the half-brother of Lucifer. No, Jesus is, they deny it. And it's heresy. And this is the heresy that becomes destructive. And what's funny is this. It says, it's not even funny, crowds will follow them. Many will follow them. I've said this and I'll say this over and over. The majority can be wrong. Getting a crowd together is not hard, right? Before COVID-19, the beavers would get 40,000 people in the stands to watch them in the freezing cold rain lose again. It's not hard to get a crowd. Don't follow the crowd. We're not to be crowd followers. We're to be Bible followers and Jesus followers. That's what we're supposed to do. So these groups, they'll get together their crowds. They'll have big parades and they'll just express themselves, right? And it's usually through sensuality. So it seems like there's this tide. If you read church history, it goes from denying Jesus and it's almost always it gets weird sexually. So this word sensual, here's the... Here's the Greek definition of this word sensual. Lasciviousness, license, debauchery, sexual excess, absence of restraint, insatiable desire for pleasure. Sounds like America on Friday night to me. That's where it goes. It goes into sexual sin. So the fakes, here's what they say. They say, God wants you to be happy. And I agree with that. I think God does want you to be happy. Fundamentally, God is after our joy and happiness. But they say, number two, since God wants you to be happy, do whatever you think will make you happy. That's where I disagree. I disagree from personal experience. Have you ever done something that you were sure would make you happy and it ended up backfiring, and you bear the scars from that bad decision to this day. Maybe it was last night. Just because you think it'll make you happy doesn't mean it will. This is where I disagree, okay? So 2,000 years ago, the fakes, here's what they did. The fakes, they zeroed in on sexual sin. Aren't you so glad that we have progressed as a society beyond that? Is sexual sin still popular? 
Woo, it'll win any election. It's as popular as ever today. So the fakes, here's what they're saying. They're saying today, all right, act authentically on whatever your sexual desires are. Homosexuality, heterosexuality, bisexuality, trisexuality, doesn't matter. Act authentically on whatever you think you're supposed to do because God created it, that in you, created those drives in you, and you need to act authentically on them. That's what's happening today. It happens with people holding this same book that I hold. But you know what they're doing? They're denying the master. Because did Jesus ever say to you and me, act authentically? No. Read Matthew 16. After Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of God, Jesus says this, then here's your job. You deny yourself. Not act authentically. You deny yourself. You take up your cross and you follow me. That's the mark of a Christian. Not to act authentically on whatever drive I have today. It's I'm a broken mess and I'm denying that in me. And I know Jesus is the answer. And so I am going to pursue him. And I know that my brokenness can be healed by his mercy and his grace and his life. And so I'm gonna charge after that, not on what I think is my authentic self because we're all broken. But they deny this. We're all Pinocchios. Do you know that? We all need to be turned into real girls and boys. And that only happens through Jesus, through community, through scripture, through communion, and through the power of his spirit. And one day we will become real boys and girls living with our king for eternity. And we deny ourselves, not act authentically. But they lie to you. They lie to you. Here's what's amazing to me. Jesus lives a deep, incredible life. He never has sex and he never gets married. But he lived a beautiful, brilliant life. And the APA now, the American Psychiatric Association, says this, the way to true joy is not to act authentically. They say the way to true joy and happiness is to act with your deepest incongruence with your deepest convictions, which is exactly what Jesus is saying. When you become a believer, your core identity is transformed, and now you become a different kind of per person. Act congruently with that new person that you are. That leads to true joy, right? And guys, men, boys, I should call them, are brilliant at sexual heresy. Do you know that? Boys have it all figured out how to lie to their girl to get sex from them. I've been doing this for a long time. It's just like lie after lie after lie. I get him in for premarital counseling. We start talking and then it's just, now it's sexual heresies. I'll give you, I got a list of them. I just keep adding to it as guys give me more lies. Number one, I get this one. We are married in God's eyes. Yeah, you laugh, you should. You know, I say, have you looked in God's eyes? He's a dad who's mad at you right now for doing what you're doing to his daughter. That's what's happening, okay? Number two is this one. Well, Matt, you know, no one buys a car without test driving it first. My answer, men who treat women like cars are terrible husbands. Get away from him. If he's gonna treat you like a car, get away from him because he'll trade you in for a newer model, right? And statistics back me up on this. People that have sex before marriage, 
versus people that wait the way God did, designed it. Those that have sex before marriage are actually practicing divorce because their divorce rates skyrocket. That God knew what he was doing when he said to men, you hold it. Love is patient. You invest in her soul and her spirit before you go physical. And then you get married and then you celebrate, not before. Well, Matt, we're just living together, but we're not sleeping together. Oh. I'm like, you're either lying or you are weird and you need to see a therapist. Because <laughs> when I got engaged, man, I left. I went across the Pacific Ocean 8,000 miles away because I know me. And there were times I looked at that ocean, I thought I could swim it. <laughs> right? If you don't have that drive in you, then something's wrong with you, bro. Or you're lying to me right now. And that's what I think. All right? So stupid. Or <laughs> it's just a piece of paper. So is a stack of $100 bills. You want to give me those? Paper means something. What that paper means is this. I have covenanted with you in front of witnesses, and I've given my vows and I'll keep my word. That's what that piece of paper means. It's not just a piece of paper. It has value if you really covenanted and you really made a true commitment to her. Hebrews 13 says that marriage bed is to remain undefiled. That's what that piece of paper is doing. Well, God knows our hearts. Yes, he does. He knows they're nasty and dirty. That's what he knows. Well, you know, I, I can't move out because it's too expensive. Live in your car, bro. And then look at the girl and say, do you want to marry a guy that can't pay the rent? Really, you wanna marry him? Or this one, we're gonna get married. You know what I say to that one? Let's do it right now. You and me get in the car, let's go to the justice of the peace right now, let's get the documents, let's do it right now. Not I'm gonna do it, do it. Make an honest woman of her. That's what you're supposed to do. Men are brilliant at all this, but God's plan is the best. He says, love is patient, husband, man, boy, invest in her heart and invest in her spirit and then have a wedding and celebrate. And if you do it my way, oh, the fruit is brilliant. It's good. Beware of the lies. Girls, beware of the lies of boys. They're really good at this one. And then fake slander the truth, it says. It's interesting, you can't make fun of anything today except for Christianity. Christianity is free game. Like everything else, like, whoa, that's politically incorrect. But Christianity, go ahead. We get slandered. So when we decided to open up this facility to the people from the fires two months ago, I got attacked because people told me this. You're just doing that for publicity. I'm like, what? I got a phone call at 8.30 at night and they're saying, we have people that don't have anywhere to stay. Is it possible to use your facility? Uh, sure, I mean, yes, totally, yeah, let's open it up. No, it's for publicity, it doesn't matter. Now, as a Christian, just know this, it doesn't matter what you do, someone's gonna slander you for it. And you just keep doing what's right. Doesn't matter, hmm? water off your back. I know what I did, I know why I did it, right? They slander the truth. There's, there's no sin anymore. What the Bible calls sin, you know what it's called today in our culture? Intolerance. And that's just the way it's gonna be. It's slandering the truth. 
Our culture is telling us, hey, you're fine and God loves you just like you are. The Bible does not say that. The Bible is not, hey, you're okay, I'm okay. You know what the Bible says? You need to deal with your biggest problem and it meets you in the mirror every morning. And if you'll take care of that problem, you'll find joy. That's what the Bible says. But that truth is slandered now, right? And then lastly, when it comes to the fakes, follow the money. The King James Version just says they want to make merchandise of you. They look at you. It's called nickels and noses, right? Tie them together. Everyone's worth a certain amount of money. And we get accused of that. Like, we're staying open right now during this time because of money. I've heard that so many times, and I'm just like, ah, ah. Listen, we could have taken hundreds of thousands of dollars from the government. They were just printing cash and handing it out back in April. And as elders, we said, we will not take the money of the government. We are trusting God and we are trusting God's people. And you know what? I have not been disappointed. We haven't begged for money. We haven't asked for money. We have just trusted God and God's people. And you know what? We have been blessed. You guys are a blessing to us. It's not about the money for us. We said back then, if we're gonna go down, we're gonna go down exactly the way we've done things at Edgewater for 14 years before this. We're going the same way. We're gonna trust God and we're gonna trust God's people. But these guys, they look at everything. How much money can we get? Fake people. So if you're in a house and you own your house and you're there and there's a big pile of garbage in your house, what are you gonna do? You can take the trash out, right? That's what's supposed to happen. But Peter says, here's what's gonna happen. The trash from the culture is gonna be taken out of the world and it's gonna be dumped inside of the church. And man, that happens. I listen to it, I read the books on it. The trash from our culture is now being imported into the church. So guess what God's gonna do? He'll take the trash out. That's what's gonna happen. So look at verse four. This is what Peter warns. So he left off, their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting, he was tormented in his soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. This is real God. I think sometimes we make a fairy God up. It just wants to sprinkle pixie dust on everybody. and Everybody has a good time. That's not the God of the Bible. Here's what Peter says. When there's fake people, God's gonna judge them. And he gives three examples, angels. Do you believe that there are spiritual powers in this world that we live in? 
Because the Bible from Genesis 3, the time the serpent shows up until Revelation 20, just intermixes the spirit and the physical world. Like they're intertwined. And I tell you what, I have sensed things and felt things that I know that's spiritual. So angels, it would appear, what happened prior to creation, somewhere before Genesis 3, there was an angel in heaven called Lucifer. And in Revelation 12, it says he is named the dragon and he rebels against God. And it says he took with him a third of the stars, which they say is a third of the angels. And I agree. And those angels and that power now, Paul would say, rule this world and they cause all kinds of chaos. He is the chaos monster. And so God, these angels that were in his presence, magnificent, powerful beings, when they sinned, God didn't spare them. He said, you're out. Example number one. Example number two. Something happens in Genesis 6. If you've read it, it's an enigma. It says the sons of God, the Benai Ahiloim, came into the daughters of Eve, and it produces this crazy world. And there's all kinds of debate on who are these sons of God. And some say that they're the fallen angels, that they somehow have, somehow have sexual relations with women and produce a race of crazy kind of beings. Others say, no, they're demonically inspired or demonically possessed kings who begin to flex their muscles and begin to take these massive swaths of women for themselves. And some say, no, they're just bad. They're just men being bad. It doesn't matter where you land theologically, the world gets so evil that God says, I gotta take the trash out. I have to wipe this thing clean. And he does it with a flood. God takes the trash out. And then Sodom and Gomorrah. As Sodom and Gomorrah are so wicked. When these angels go into the town to visit with Lot, the men try to grab a hold of them and rape them. It's so depraved. Sodom and Gomorrah would make Las Vegas uh, blush. That's how bad it was. And God says, okay. okay, I'm judging them. I'm taking the trash out. Man, I thought, I thought God was a God of love. Taking the trash out is love. And if you're in here and you have been hurt by a trash living life, then your heart rejoices that you have a God who loves you enough to bring justice one day. If you have not been hurt that bad, be thankful. Because I talk to a lot of people that have been hurt really, really bad by the trash living lives of others. And they see God's justice, that he will take the trash out as a loving dad who's saying, okay. But here's the amazing thing. In every instance, God gave so much time. Because we'll see in chapter three that God is patient not wanting any to perish. And here's the good news. With every single one of these judgments, there's a corresponding rescue that God rescues. Not all the angels are cast out. Two thirds of them are kept and rescued, right? When the whole world goes crazy, Genesis 6, and God has to destroy it, Noah and his wife and their three boys and their three wives, they're saved by God. He rescues them. Sodom and Gomorrah, so wicked and so evil, but God marches in there and saves Lot. And Lot is called righteous, which should stun you. 
which means this, that God's rescue mission for righteous people, when it comes to a bar, the bar is set really, really low. God's willing to rescue people that you're like, are you kidding? You'd rescue him? Yep, I'd rescue him. Read the story of Lot. He is a sick, sick family and God rescues them. That means the bar is really, really low. So Peter in this chapter is forcing some questions. It's super hard, no doubt. He's forcing some questions. Do you wanna be part of the trash? Like it's taken out because God will do it. It's coming. I don't know when, it's coming. Or do you wanna be part of the recycled people? They have the stamp of redemption on them that God rescues because that's the only two groups. And Peter just lays it out right here. But man, I'm really, really bad. You're not worse than Lot, trust me. And Lot gets rescued because it's not about you. It's about his mercy and his grace being greater than you, right? Don't make your sin bigger than the cross. Don't make your garbage bigger than God. That's what Lot tells us. So are you saved? Are you certain that your life has been stamped with the mark of redemption on it, the gift of God's spirit, that you know that you know, the Bible says that your spirit bears witness with his spirit, that you are one of the sons of God. Ah, oh, I'm redeemed. Are you saved? Have you trusted in King Jesus as God and Savior, as Peter would put it? Because that's the only question that will matter. Who do you say that I am? And if you have questions on that, when we're done, there'll be people up here to pray for you. They can pray for you and lead you into salvation. And if you get saved, you can go right after that, out to that baptismal, and your first act of obedience to King Jesus is to be baptized. And the heavens and Edgewater will rejoice with you because that's the greatest thing in the world. There's no better thing than to become part of the family of God and we'll rejoice with you. If you're a believer, when we take communion, here's what we're taking. Here's what we're remembering. We're a righteous lot. That's what we're remembering. That no matter how wicked we've been, Isaiah would say, come, let us reason together. Though your sins were like scarlet, they've been made white as snow. That no sin a human can commit is greater than the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what we're remembering. And so Jesus, as we partake in this, I pray that we would, as Peter exhorts us, grow in grace. That we reject this craziness of our world that says, you're okay, I'm okay. And we believe what the Bible says about us, that we are broken in desperate need of a healer. And that we hold in our hands the elixir to the poison of this world, you. You are the answer. Let's eat together. And we're grateful that 
took the cup, the cup of cleansing, the cup of forgiveness, the cup of sanctification. We like the author Jude would say, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless on that day, be the glory that we trust you, your power, your spirit, your word to transform us into the kind of people that we desperately want to be. And so may we drink of cleansing, of curing, of healing today. Let's drink together. Amen. Amen. So there'll be prayer up here, prayer for salvation, prayer for anything. We'd love to pray for you. And there's baptisms like we do every single week here. If you wanna do either one of those things, it's our joy to join with you. If you're doing great, be thankful. We have a good God. Would you stand for one final song?